name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to The Swap Podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. When asked to identify the greatest challenge of his government, former UK Prime Minister Harold Macmillan is reputed to have answered, events, my dear boy, events. Regardless of whether or not he actually said it, the past year has shown just how true that is. From the war in Ukraine to the so-called UK mini-budget to the onset of the crypto winter and the collapse of FTX, 2022 has been dominated by a succession of unanticipated crises that have shaken markets and, in the case of the UK, triggered a central bank intervention. As we approach the end of the year, we're going to spend this episode looking back and trying to make sense of some of the events that have shaped derivatives and capital markets in 2022. Joining me, as per usual, is ISDA's CEO, Scott O'Malia, but we're going to be doing things a little bit differently for this episode. Scott, you're actually going to be the one in the hot seat answering the questions this time. That's right, but I won't be alone. I'll also be joined by ISDA's chairman, Eric Litvak. Eric is the managing director and group director of public affairs at Societe Generale in Paris and has been ISDA's chairman since 2015. So he'll be able to provide a terrific perspective on what's been happening this year, what it means for derivative markets, and how ISDA has responded. Fantastic. Well, let's get straight to it. Eric, a big welcome back to The Swap. I should note that you're our first guest to appear twice, which I guess either means we're doing something right or just means you're a glutton for punishment. Either way, you're here. Thanks for that. So let's jump straight into the questions. And Eric, I will pose this first one to you. How would you sum up this year in a single word? Oh, I guess that would have to be tension. There's been the conflict in Ukraine, the return to multipolar Cold War, the return of inflation, political instability and partisanship in the West, the dramatic bursting of the tech bubble. I mean, the second choice would have been flashback. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Scott, let me ask you the same one. One word. How would you describe it? Uh, unpredictable. I think very similar to Eric. Uh, Russia invasion, uh, high inflation, crypto Armageddon. I don't think any of us would have predicted all of these things that have come to play, not only to mention also liquidity crisis, et cetera. So as we think about next year and planning for next year, we're going to be a little more flexible, I think. Well, let's just go into a little bit more detail on that. And Scott, I'll stick with you. Can you give a bit of an overview of what would be your highlights and challenges of 2022? Well, we did have a very good year. It started off strong with the LIBOR transition, making sure that everybody was able and ready to utilize the protocols, which we had over 15,000 entities that did sign the protocols to implement that to secure that their legacy contracts would continue to have a useful rate with the fallbacks. We also had a successful rollout of phase six of the initial margin rules. And one of the most, uh, probably the sleeper stories is closeout netting in China. We've been working and talking about this for many, many years. This year, the futures and derivatives law was passed and implemented, and ISDA has now a netting opinion for China, which is a remarkable turn of events. And one other point, we passed the 1,000 member mark, which was a huge milestone and achievement and recognition, I think, of a job well done. Indeed. Eric, same question. What were your challenges and what would you see as the key highlights? So I'm going to try and avoid repeating some of the things that Scott said, but certainly I fully endorse those. Those are all massively important things. I guess when I look back over the year, the successes are a mix of continuing in a challenging environment to deliver on all the many things that we as an association have been working on. 
and that includes, as Scott mentioned, LIBOR, but also it includes, yes, the successful rollout of finally phase six of the initial margin rules, progress on the CDM and the DRR for digital regulatory reporting, continued advances in digitalization, our work streams on ESG that have been taking off this year, and on crypto assets, and then dealing with the unexpected. So, I mean, the, the, in a sense, the highlight for me, and this is probably the flip side is going to be the challenges, but in a sense, the highlight has been shepherding ISDA and the derivatives markets through the new sanctions landscape. Well, we're going to come back to discuss quite a few of those issues that you've both mentioned, but we're going to start off then with the war in Ukraine. You both mentioned that. And of course, the subsequent spike in energy prices, which has really put a spotlight on the energy security of individual countries. Do you think that hampers or perhaps even helps the transition to a more sustainable economy? And Scott, let's start with you again. The real challenge is the transition, but a transition starts with a strong energy security base. And I think we've recognized that. Hard thoughts go out to those that are impacted by this war. It has had, obviously, huge impacts to the Ukrainian people, but obviously the knock-on effects to everybody else in Europe and, and, frankly, global prices has really met some significant review of kind of energy policy and outlook and how do you deal with this and the recognition that so much of the energy supply does come out of Russia and whether it's oil or natural gas, fertilizer, we have to think about what that means for the long-term outlook for the economies and certainly how do we make do and work around these problems. So there are no easy answers and the countries I think are working very hard to make sure that energy supplies are available to make sure that Europe is not significantly impacted in a negative way. They have adequate heating energy supply to keep the electricity on during this winter. And it looks like reserves are very high and very strong. But that took a lot of work, a lot of effort to replace that supply. So the energy security question is always very fundamental. And you can't really affect a transition without having that energy security in place in the first place. Okay, Eric, same question then. Does the high energy prices and the focus on energy security actually help or hinder the move to a greener economy? In the short term, it's clearly led to an increase in fossil fuel sourcing, storage. As Scott said, there's been a real determined and not necessarily coordinated effort to increase storage in the short term to get through this winter and the next. And this crisis hit at a particularly Difficult time because storage levels were low, and that's probably no accident because they were particularly low in Germany where most of, much of the storage was Russian-owned, but also because the other big source of energy in Europe, the French nuclear park, half of the park was offline for maintenance. So there's been this enormous scramble that has made short-term fossil fuel security a preoccupation. But longer term, I think this is going to lead to a search for reducing dependency, not just on Russia, but on fossil fuel energy sources generally. Now, it's clear that the transition to a more sustainable economy will require trillions of dollars in investment in green infrastructure and new technologies. How can capital markets and derivatives help channel that investment? Eric, let's start with you. So the numbers that are kicked around are all difficult to comprehend in their largeness. But we're talking about north of $100 trillion in investment required in capital by 2050 in order to 
fund the sustainability initiatives and infrastructures that we need to manage the transition. So that means that it can't just be bank financed, it can't just be public sector finance, it's going to require mobilizing capital markets. And as soon as you say that, you're saying it's also going to involve risk management, it's going to involve derivatives in order to ensure that projects are risk managed in the most efficient way and that you're taking market risk, you're taking interest rate risk as much as possible out of the equation so that you can fund all these new projects. It's also going to require quite probably the development of voluntary carbon credit markets. And that's something where ISDA has been quite involved. And Scott might want to talk about that further, but at least in terms of clarifying the legal framework around VCCs so that we can see the emergence of a derivative market. And of course, we've been developing work on sustainability-linked derivatives, which at the moment are still a small part of the equation. But increasingly, you're seeing a number of corporates raising capital with sustainability-linked goals tied directly into the funding rates. So a developing market and enormous potential. Scott, Eric mentioned the voluntary carbon market. Perhaps you can just talk about that, why it's important, and more broadly, what's ISDA doing to support this market and the ESG sector more generally? Yeah, we're focused on two primary areas. One is on the legal framework side, and the other is on risking capital and accounting. On the legal framework side, we want to make sure, like every other product class, that we make sure that we have the best definitions, that we update them to reflect current regulation, current use. And so we have focused on the voluntary carbon market and the sustainability-linked derivatives market, making sure that we have kind of best practices and best standards in place. People can negotiate their new arrangements and agreements to develop both of these solutions to use them in their net zero strategies. It's been fascinating to watch how many companies have adopted net zero strategies. And as part of that, they're trying to use the voluntary carbon markets or these sustainability-linked derivatives to help join that strategy up. So it's reduce your emissions, but those are the emissions you can't reduce. You can potentially mitigate them through voluntary carbon credits or credits through sustainability-linked derivatives. So we want to put the flesh on the bones to make those as effective and as useful as possible to make sure that regulators and market participants understand exactly what they've signed up for and to make sure that we have complete transparency, auditability, and oversight of these products. Now, we're also working with other trades, other organizations, including the Integrity Council for Voluntary Carbon Markets, which is very focused on making sure that there are good governance standards around these projects. As Eric noted, the numbers are mind-boggling. We need hundreds of trillions of dollars to support investment in these technologies and these innovations. It can't come from government balance sheets. It's about mobilizing the necessary capital. So when you have a good voluntary carbon project, and let's say it's something in South America that either it's nature-based or it's technology-based, we want to make sure that the carbon credits that are produced by that, by either saving a natural habitat or sequestering or removing carbon, are solutions that you can bank on, that are reliable, that are accurate, that have transparency and auditability that you can really, as they say, take it to the bank. And making sure that those are useful going forward as part of your net zero strategy. So both of those products, voluntary carbon markets and sustainability linked derivatives are both innovative, exciting things that we're going to support going forward. We're about to publish a new 2022 ISDA verified carbon credit derivatives definitions that includes templates and confirmations for spot, forward, and options contracts. 
This will support both the compliance market in Europe. We have a robust and long-term compliance market of over a decade and the voluntary carbon market, which is more on a global scale. We're working with AIDA, which is the International Emissions Trading Association that focuses on the spot market development to make sure that we have good definitions that link primary market and secondary market definitions and templates. That way, I think we'll be fully aligned and it'll all be quite useful to market participants. The other one is risk and capital. Also exciting, but we're looking at making sure that the Basel implementation, the risk framework for the trading book is is risk appropriate, not too costly in terms of capital or too light in capital, but to make sure it's risk appropriate. And then some longer term, we're also looking at how we think about climate-related risk and what are the scenarios, climate scenario planning and how that impacts various risk-weighted assets. That's a long-term initiative, but it is taking the complexity of climate policy and climate scenarios and then linking them accurately to risk-weighted assets. It's getting good data, getting good methodologies, picking the right scenarios is quite a challenge. But I think working with policymakers, market participants, we can unpack this question, get better data, develop better scenarios to make sure that it's as accurate as possible. Just a quick follow-up question. You talked about the importance of integrity of some of these voluntary carbon credits that you were mentioning a minute ago. How big a threat is greenwashing? It's a threat, and I think it might be a little bit overhyped because I know that every product developer, every buyer is very focused on greenwashing and very focused on making sure that it doesn't happen and that they have good transparency into the origin of the product and the life cycle of it. So I think people are very well attuned to it. There's no organization out there that wants to purchase credits that have not been counted or counted twice or the force sold multiple times. So I think everybody's doing their due diligence to make sure that that happens. And we have a bunch of registries that are, their job is to focus on making sure that these credits are robust. And then the secondary market, whether it's CME or LSE or any of these other institutions around the world, they are too watching to make sure that the credits that they put on their platform for secondary markets are also robust and are exempt from greenwashing. I would also point out that at least in the CFTC jurisdiction, because these are traded as futures, the CFTC does have oversight into the primary market for fraud manipulation. And I know firsthand from the chairman and the commission, in fact, that they're very focused on making sure that this market is robust and they will look into very closely and very aggressively any greenwashing claims. Okay, let's shift from energy and ESG to non-bank financial intermediation or MBFI. Regulators globally have raised concerns about apparent vulnerabilities in MBFI having knock-on impacts on asset prices and liquidity in the broader market. We saw that following the March 2020 dash for cash and more recently the sharp rise in UK gilt yields in September, which left UK pension schemes pursuing liability-driven investment strategies facing huge margin calls on their derivatives positions, forcing them to sell gilt to raise cash. How seriously are regulators taking this issue? Eric? So this has been a focus area for regulators for some time, and most markedly, as you say, since the dash for cash in 2020. There's long been concerns that having regulated leverage in the banking sector, having increased capital levels in the banking sector, that risk was potentially likely to come from accelerated asset disposals, liquidity squeezes outside the banking sector. And 
I mean, the three examples that you gave there, the dash for cash in 2020, the, the energy crisis earlier this year, the LDI crisis in the UK just recently, those are all the sort of events that you'd expect to see once every 10 to 20 years, not three times in two years. So if you'd looked at the beginning of the year, there was a sense that the NBFI work stream at the FSB might have been winding down. There'd been work done, most notably on money market funds, on the repo market, haircuts for repo, clearing for repo. I think the events of the past year are going to put this back front and center because it is a vector for risk propagation. The demands on liquidity have a potential to create very significant systemic risk. And that is something that I think is going to be a continued area of focus over the next year and more as the public sector authorities look to further constrain or further identify areas of leverage in the non-bank system, including what they would call hidden leverage or synthetic leverage or leverage through instruments other than debt. So I think this is a, a work stream that is going to continue for some time, and it is going to closely involve ISDA in terms of its impacts on the derivatives market, on clearing, and it will have cross-cutting effects on our work. Scott, anything you want to add to that? And perhaps picking up on Eric's point about how this is going to involve ISDA and some of our work, perhaps you can elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, we've been looking at this, you know, we published a report following the dash for cash and understand that better. And regulators have kind of come out with a series of recommendations. So when we think about this and look at this, margin is a big factor that people have come up with. We have many more entities now exchanging margin. We had the energy crisis here in Europe, which required energy producers and distributors to post more margin. The LDI crisis exacerbated the margin call on pension funds. So these are the kind of things that we're looking at, and is has been front and center, whether it's advocating for cost-effective clearing or through the non-cleared margin work that we've been doing. As Eric mentioned at the top of the podcast, you know, we've finally completed phase six. So looking at the pro-cyclicality of margin, both cleared and non-cleared is pretty important, making sure that the models and the assumptions are robust. We're also going to be looking at the exchange of collateral, the operations itself. Is has been spending the last couple of years thinking about how you can help facilitate the operational exchange of collateral to make it more cost-effective to exchange it, making sure it's digital so you can track and manage your margin in a much easier way. Because when crises hit, you really stress the operational side of the business, the mid and back office, and making sure that we understand all the inventory you have in collateral, what the cheapest to deliver will be, and establishing some best practices and hopefully using the common domain model to begin to implement a more digital solution that makes it more accurate and timely in terms of its exchange. We'll also be looking at the capital treatment of repo and other products in this short-term funding window that regulators have also been looking at. Eric mentioned the clearing of repo, so we'll probably get more involved in that in the coming months. Okay, you mentioned margin. So let's pick up on that point and briefly discuss the implementation of the sixth phase of the initial margin rules for non-cleared derivatives, which occurred on September the 1st. Now, this was the biggest phase so far, by far the biggest phase so far, with hundreds of smaller entities coming into scope. What were your impressions of the implementation and what's left to do? Eric, perhaps start with you. 
So as you say, this was the biggest phase. In fact, in the initial roadmap, there was only ever going to be five phases. And the last phase was always such a concern that it was split into a phase five and a phase six. And then phase six was subsequently split into two halves. So this is for quite a few years now been an issue of considerable concern because of the long tail distribution of participants that we would have to onboard into the margin process at this point in time. The way I would describe this, astonishingly, is the dog that didn't bark. It actually went off quite smoothly. And when I say the dog that didn't bark, that wasn't because we got our heads into an anxious space and there was nothing to worry about. This is because of all the work that collectively we as an industry put in. ISDA has been working on this for seven years, every year hammering away at members, at clients to ensure that they would be drilling for readiness when the time came for their phase and their onboarding. So kudos to ISDA, kudos to members, the dealers who've been working on this, kudos to the custodians who've been working like titans to get this over the line, and to the infrastructure providers. So this has been the result of a lot of people all pulling in the same direction. Say you can point to SIM as well and the fact that industry came together to have a common and transparent margin method. All this so that we could actually pull this off on the big night and not create headlines. <laughs> you sort of want to celebrate your successes and it's funny to think, well, the measure of our success is that we didn't make the front page. But that really is it. And there's still plenty left to do. We need to continue monitoring all those and there's a long tailored distribution of clients, users, or derivatives who are below the thresholds, but that you'll need to keep monitoring because their usage will progressively increase and some of them will need to be onboarded. And when they need to be onboarded, they need to have signed all the documents and readied all the infrastructure and tested. So it's going to be sort of a permanent rolling phase six, but that's been the key to success is ensuring that everybody's focused on this and we're all pulling in the same direction and we're all ensuring that clients are prioritized by order of risk and that we're working together to ensure their readiness for when they come in scope. That's a really important point. Even though the phase six deadline on September the 1st has passed, we're not at the end of the process. We're not at the end of the journey. And it is, as you say, Eric, going to be a long tail of firms that are going to be coming into scope over time. Scott, what's ISDA doing to help those firms? Well, our goal is to provide solutions at scale for the entire industry. So we started with developing the standard initial margin model. And that's a single model that is transparent to both the buy side and the sell side. And as Eric noted, technology providers like service providers, they can run the model for entities. The other bit of work that we've done is to develop all of the regulatory compliant credit support documentation and eligible collateral templates, making sure everybody had the right documents that were going to comply with the jurisdiction that they were trading in so they could negotiate with their counterparties. And on top of that, we created a platform, is to create, which is a multilateral negotiation platform at scale that participants can engage with their dealer counterparties to make sure that they negotiate and sign up all of the documentation that's necessary. And we've included the custodians, which are certainly vital part of this ecosystem. And they too have put their documents on this platform. We're trying to really help the industry adapt at the most cost-effective way and the simplest way. And we've given regulators a lot of transparency into the entire process as well. So they have a high level of confidence that this is all being done on the up and up. Okay, time is ticking. So I'm going to switch topics once again. 
As we're recording this podcast, we're days away from the rollout of the first phase of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission's revised swap data reporting rules. Eric, can you explain why that's important? This is a very significant project for ISDA in terms of delivering on our digitalization objectives and in terms of delivering mutualized solutions for members. The DRR, which is what we're using for the CFTC implementation, is an extension of the common domain model. So it's a data and process model for products, for trades, for events that aim to put all market participants onto a common syntax and facilitate better reconciliation, better quality and clarity of reporting. And the CFTC DRR is going to be the first real-life demonstration of this. It's going to bring firms together. They've been mutualizing and crowdsourcing their review of the code. It's a collective approach, and it will facilitate adoption of new reporting standards to ISO 2022. It will help members ensure that they are reporting similarly for similar events and similar products. It will great much greater comfort to regulators, supervisors who are receiving the data. And a successful rollout of the CFTC version will then enable us to leverage that development for the next wave of ISO 2022 reporting standards. So not far behind CFTC, we've got EMIR, we've got MAS. And the idea is to leverage as much as possible in order to add more consistency ease of reading and writing, ease of interpretation and mutualization to the reporting process and create value for members by taking away this old style approach where everybody would deliver something off their own bat and potentially the end result was an accumulation of reportings that were much more difficult to decrypt for supervisors. This is transformative and a key deliverable for ISDA. Scott, when you were a CFTC commissioner, you regularly talked about the importance of reporting and transparency. How do you think the CFTC rule rewrite and the launch of DRR version 1.0, how do they contribute to achieving that? Well, back in the day when we first implemented, it was every jurisdiction producing its own rules, and then every entity had to kind of respond and develop its own implementation strategy. We're now over 20 jurisdictions worldwide that have reporting requirements. Regulators have, over the past several years, been working to better align them, but these are not by any stretch identical regs or reporting. What goes into the fields and how the fields are organized are different slightly in many jurisdictions, across every jurisdiction in fact. So what we've tried to do, just like with the non-cleared margin rules, is develop a common standard, as Eric articulated, a taxonomy that is consistent for each rule set. And then we leverage the data that is identical from one rule set to the next, and then fill in the blanks for where they're not identical. So you will have a DRR or a digital reg reporting strategy for the CFTC on December 5th. We are also working on one for EMIR, the European solution, which comes next. We will work on the UK, so there is a UK strategy, and as Eric noted, we'll develop strategies throughout Asia as they come into scope. So we think that most of this code and information is reusable, but we'll make it adapted to each specific jurisdiction so you'll be able to effectively report in that jurisdiction. Ultimately, organizing this data in a consistent way, it'll just be a software solution as you map from one to the next jurisdiction, and you'll be able to unpick this quite easily using a common taxonomy as we've developed in the common domain model. So we think this is 
a significant opportunity to make sure it's routine, it is scalable, and makes it also machine-readable and human-readable. The other final point that I'd like to highlight is we've made this open source. We've made this code available to everybody, including the regulators, including to all market participants, to adjust the code as necessary to suit their own needs and particular requirements. We will have a benchmark of what the CFTC rules are or the AMIR rules so everybody knows what their obligations are. Firms will be able to take this code and utilize it in their own way as they see appropriate. So we're not trying to capture anything. It's completely open source. And we just want to make sure that everybody can accurately cost-effectively meet their reporting obligations. Yeah, that's an interesting point. People could either choose to use that code as a direct basis for their implementation if they were so inclined, or they could use it to benchmark, to use that mutually industry consensus view of what the rules are requiring and just use it as a double check against their own implementation. So that's a few ways that people can actually use this. Yeah, maybe I'd point out one other thing. BNP Paribas has actually used the common domain model to execute the CFTC rules. They've already demonstrated that in a test version. They'll be able to comply with that using the common domain model to comply with the regulations on December 5th. So we have an actual live demonstration of this that has worked and fulfilled the obligation. So we're pretty pleased with that. And we know that others are joining as well. Great. Well, before I ask you for your predictions for 2023, I'd like to ask you to cast your minds back to the start of 2022, when 30 LIBOR settings were retired. As we approach the deadline for the cessation of the final five US dollar LIBOR settings at the end of June 2023, what lessons have been learned? And is the market ready for the end of US dollar LIBOR? Scott, let's start with you on this one. Without a doubt, the retirement of 30 LIBOR settings at the end of last year, beginning of this year, was a huge undertaking, moving so many entities. As I mentioned earlier, 15,000 entities signed this protocol that facilitated that transition. We also have put in place the fallbacks. We do have more work ahead of us as we think about the next five U.S. dollar LIBOR settings. But that transition to facilitate the move from LIBOR to the risk-free rates was used around the globe and it was used in so many other different product sets as well as the standard and foundation for computing that transition from LIBOR to the new risk-free rates. It was nothing short of amazing in terms of getting everybody off it. You think about over $200 trillion worth of contracts that were written just in derivatives alone to LIBOR. It was a monumental feat to get that across the line. Eric, anything to add? Yeah, just briefly, you mentioned at the beginning of the episode that this is my second stint on the swap. You were kind enough to invite me to participate in episode five, and we're now in episode 27, which is a a tribute to your enduring quality and the number of issues facing the market. But during that episode, you asked me more or less the same question about where we were at the time. And I think what I said was that we were at the end of the beginning. I'm going to go on a limb now and saying we're at the beginning of the end. It does feel like despite the monumental complexity of this undertaking, we are gradually working our way towards the end of it. Volumes in, in SOFR have been picking up well. RFR adaptation is healthy. There continues to be strong regulatory impulse to weaning remaining issuers and users off the last residual LIBORs. So I'm hopeful that this will be, after a tremendous amount of anxiety and hard work, another dog that doesn't bite, thanks to an effort of combined and massive complexity by both the public and private sectors. 
Well, I picked up a uh, Winston Churchill quote and a play on a Conan Doyle quote as well there, Eric. So let's see if you can fit another one in when I ask you for your predictions. It's said that it's difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. But I'm going to ask you to do just that. What will the key issues be in 2023, Eric? So it was Yogi Berra that said that, supposedly. <laughs> um there's going to be a lot more of the same. As we said earlier, there's going to be a lot of continued tension and scrutiny of non-bank financial intermediation. There's going to be continued geopolitical and energy tensions. We're going to be dealing with the impact of anti-inflation measures and a possible recession. We will continue to be focusing on ESG and supply chain management issues. All of these are going to persist and they will all have cross-cutting impacts on each other. So that's going to keep us, I think, still very occupied in what is promising to be a very complex and challenging 2023. Scott, let's hear your predictions. Well, the only thing Eric didn't mention is crypto, and there's a body of work that needs to be done there, particularly around custodians, making sure that we manage and understand how crypto assets are being held and managed, whether by exchange or in various wallets. The legal foundation of those things as well needs to be closely looked at and verified because we now know that crypto isn't going to go rise up into the right infinitely as it has over the past couple of years that we have to face the important questions of bankruptcy and certainly customer protection, making sure those assets are right where they're supposed to be because they are those assets are customer assets, and they should always be in strong protection there. That's an area where we can contribute. I agree with Eric on the sustainability agenda. This is something that regulators are very focused on, as are firms. Thousands and thousands of public firms have made net zero commitments, as have governments. We're going to have to help see that through and make sure that they have the tools to complete that work. Okay, Scott, you always like to end your interviews by asking a question to get to know your guests a little better. So I'm going to take a leaf out of your book here. What were your first jobs and what were your best jobs? But here's the thing. You're not allowed to include the job you have now. Scott. Well, I had a long history in public service before I came to the private sector. And some of those jobs that I did there were absolutely fascinating. My role in the U.S. Senate being the clerk of the Energy and Water Appropriations Committee, my job was to essentially oversee the expenditure of $32 billion through the Department of Energy, which included not only cutting-edge science, renewable energy projects, nuclear energy projects, but it also included nuclear programs, including the weapons program. But I got to work with some first-rate people at the national labs, both in the U.S. and globally, Large Hadron Collider, et cetera. So big science and big ideas made that job absolutely fascinating. Not every project came off as planned. Science is risky, and they're testing new ideas, new science, new theories. But the work was absolutely fascinating and rewarding as well. And first job? My very first job, this is a much longer, working in a lumberyard and a men's clothing store that sold work gear. But the first professional job was the Public Securities Association, which was in Washington. That was my first, very first policy job. Both ends of the spectrum there. Eric, what about you? First job and best job? Well, you've conditioned this on excluding my current job. And that makes it particularly challenging for me because I've been with my current employer for 36 years now. So if I go back before then, then we're talking about the times that I was riding my bicycle to deliver newspapers, which I think is something that you can only find on old stock photos nowadays. 
it's not actually a job that still exists. And it's usually used to illustrate the 1950s and 1960s. I did it in the early 70s, by the way. <laughs> Mr. Chairman, though, that's been a terrific job. Oh, I was hoping you'd say that. <laughs> well, that's about it. We're just about out of time. Eric, Scott, thanks for sharing your views. We'll be back in 2023, and we'll see if some of those predictions pan out. But until then, we'd like to wish all of our members a very happy holiday and a happy new year. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website, www.isda.org, and our social media channels. See you next time.